Welcome to the Lawyerist Podcast with Sam Glover and Aaron Street. Each week, Lawyerist brings you advice and interviews to help you build a more successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. And now, here are Sam and Aaron. Hi, I'm Sam Glover. And I'm Aaron Street, and this is episode 68 of the Lawyerist Podcast, where we talk with Adam Ziegler about the cool and valuable projects he's working on at the Harvard Library Innovation Lab. Today's podcast is sponsored by Smokeball. Turbocharge your small law firm with case management from Smokeball. Watch a two-minute demo at smokeball.com today. Today's podcast is also sponsored by Zero Beautiful Legal Accounting, Simplified. If you're already using Clio, connect with Zero to get the best of both worlds. Find out more at zero.com slash Clio. That's X-E-R-O dot com slash Clio. If you enjoy our show, please visit lawyerist.com slash podcast and click on support the podcast to help us keep new episodes coming every week. So Aaron, over the last week, uh, there's been a couple of interesting things that have popped up about official law, where it comes from, how it gets funded, but more importantly, maybe even, is the fact that nobody knows how to redact PDFs. So here's what happened. Um, Sarah Glassmeyer, who was a guest on episode 54 of our podcast, was trying to figure out how to get the official case law, um, because where is that published? Is it on the court's website? Is it in a Westlaw reporter or what? And in doing so, she uncovered, published on the Ohio Supreme Court's website, a copy of their contract with Westlaw to publish the reporter. And it had been redacted, or so she thought. And it turns out that uh, Westlaw gives the court all kinds of perks in exchange for being the reporter, or maybe official reporter, or maybe not. It's still kind of unclear, and Sarah's working that out on her blog. But the numbers were redacted. So it turns out they get a bunch of free copies of the reporter's back, and they get a discount on access to Westlaw. And then a few hours later, Sarah posted the unredacted version of the contract. But what turns out to have happened is that it wasn't actually redacted in the first place. The Ohio Supreme Court clerk who did this or whoever did it had just drawn black boxes over the numbers in a PDF. And because she was looking at on, on her iPad, Sarah could see what was under the black boxes because the iPad doesn't recognize those black boxes. So this isn't a story about the contracts and copyrights and licensing of reporting official law, which is a topic we've discussed in the past and we'll keep discussing. It's a question of the Ohio State Supreme Court not knowing how to redact a PDF. Yeah, and, it, and it's kind of a story about how nobody seems to know how to redact PDFs. People are always screwing this up. You know, when, when you talk to people about how they need Acrobat Pro or a similar program um, in the same way that they need Microsoft Word and they say, why? Then I go to myself, well, I bet this person is violating the confidential information rules in their state right and left because they probably aren't redacting PDFs properly. So yeah, it happens a lot. And there is a correct way to redact PDF documents. You can actually remove that data from the, the document, but you have to use the redaction tool in Acrobat Pro, not just draw black boxes. That is so amazing. And it just is. think like a, presumably someone could now go to the Ohio State Supreme Court website and find other potentially more damaging redacted documents. And I assume they were created the same way. Yeah. And and they're a ton in PACER. Um, there have been a couple people have gone to try to find out, you know, how much unredacted information is in PACER. 
and not specifically looking for badly redacted PDFs, but just stuff that was never redacted in the first place, which is a separate problem. Uh, and there's plenty of it. It's, it's problematic. So um, we are going to help you out. We will post the instructions for redacting PDFs in the show notes, and we are working on a tutorial post of our own quickly so that we will have that information up on Lawyerist so that it's easier to find. But yeah, it's, it's really important. Um, you have to redact that sensitive information, and if you're going to do it, do it properly. And if you want to know how much of a perk the Ohio Supreme Court is getting, Sarah did take it down, but uh, I'm sure people have grabbed it. Hint, hint. So the proper way to do it, of course, <laughs> is to print out the document cover it over with black <laughs> marker, and then photocopy the new version, right? Well, I mean, y- you actually can do it that way, and that will work. <laughs> I-, I was joking. <laughs> I, I, mean, I mean, that's better than just drawing black boxes in Acrobat, honestly, because that, that will actually redact the document. I wouldn't do it that way. There's an easy-to-use redaction tool. It will even go through your documents and automatically search out social security numbers and things like that. So it will do some of the redacting for you. It's a, a really amazing tool. And then it removes the information from the documents so that you can never, nobody can recover it. So, so are you sending that link to the Ohio Supreme Court? Uh, I, I'm not because hmm. I think that would make me feel, seem like a jackass. But Yeah, for the um, first but, time but, ever. <laughs> but hopefully, hopefully somebody noticed what happened over the weekend and panicked and learned how to do it properly. And may, actually, maybe we should send them a copy of Acrobat Pro. Maybe. Do we have extra copies of Acrobat Pro? <laughs> Not that I'm aware of. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So, with that lesson out of the way, here's my conversation with Adam Ziegler, which is not entirely unrelated to the issue of technology and courts. And I think you're going to find it really interesting. My name's Adam Ziegler. I am currently the, uh, I manage projects in the Library Innovation Lab which is part of the Harvard Law School Library. I um, am a lawyer. I practiced for about 10, 11 years uh, in D.C. and Boston with a mix of big firms and uh, a small trial boutique. I did a lot of commercial litigation, things like that. Then I got really interested in uh, technology and law-related technology, how uh, tech can help improve the quality and efficiency of what lawyers do. Um, and that uh, brought me into the world of creating my own uh, startup called Moodus, which went uh, pretty well for a little while and then didn't go so well, and we shut it down recently. And um, after a couple of years of Moodus, I was fortunate to find the opportunity here at the Law School Library in the Innovation Lab and jumped at it to work on some really amazing projects with some really cool people. And that's what I'm doing now. One of the things that strikes me as awesome about the library information lab and and some things like it is that it looks like you guys just kind of sit around thinking about useful cool projects to do and then you do them yeah i mean i wish it were quite that (laughs) not quite that (laughs) i wish it were but we do hunt for you know problems that we can usefully solve or usefully contribute to solving and um, sometimes those problems you know have more of a of a law um, flavor. Sometimes they have more of a library flavor. Sometimes mm-hmm. they have more of a data flavor or archiving preservation flavor. Um, I mean, you're free. You're kind of freer to dream up some stuff that it doesn't necessarily have to have a, a revenue attached to it. It, it. it usefulness is more the measure of success. It seems like it, that's right. We're very fortunate to be able to kind of look, um, you know, near and far 
for problems that we can contribute to, that we can usefully contribute to and hopefully solve. And we're not, uh, we don't have to think from the get-go about revenue in a for-profit sense, but it's always a factor that mm-hmm. we're thinking about sustainability and we're thinking about um, scalability. And we're thinking about doing small experiments that we can, we can um, without a lot of resources, uh, try to test out assumptions and hypotheticals and theories before anybody commits a lot of resources to them. But, uh, but you're right, we're, we're fortunate to, to not be kind of in the for-profit from the get-go mode. You know, one of the things that uh, I noticed that you are trying to do, and you just mentioned it, sustainability. So many open source projects, so many public interest projects, and so many things that get built at hackathons are really only useful for a short time because they very quickly um, become obsolete due to you know updates or upgrades or changes and the way things are. And it seems to me that a project without someone to sort of administer it and shepherd it and keep it going is kind of useless and some of the things you've taken on are really ambitious and really do need that longevity. For sure. Um, some of our projects, I mean, the obvious one is PERMA CC and yeah. you know, we can talk a bit more about it later, but um, it, it has, for it to do its job or to solve the problem it's it's aiming at, it's got to be around for a long time. And so it has to have stability and sustainability and longevity built in from the, from the get-go. Well, and how do you, how do you, dis- how do you do that? Like, how do you, You've got a, a bunch of projects actually that need to be long term, or or they're worthless. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, I might not say worthless, but I, you're right that it's important to to think about that. And so, what we try to do is look for ways other than just continuously adding staff and and resources to something. So, so what we love to do, our favorite thing to do, is to um, is to build and rely upon open source technology so that we can we can tap into and, 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 uh, and sometimes create a community of others with similar interests, similar, similar uh, skills who may be able to contribute to what we're trying to do. And, you know, Parma is a great example of this. So the key to Parma is that it's not um, me and our little team doing all the work. Um, we've built the platform. We've built the technology. But it's really a lot of the work that makes Parma go is being handled by, you know, more than 150 libraries all over the country and the world who are essentially administering PERMA for their communities of uh, students or faculty or journals. And so we kind of, we say, distribute or federate the, um, the, the, some of the effort that needs to go into sustaining something and scaling. So essentially you're forming partnerships. Forming partnerships all over the place. And getting commitments, I imagine, for both developer resources and maybe hosting servers and things like that too? Well, sometimes it's developer resources. Sometimes we talk about um, hosting. I mean, we we have a uh, on the perma side. I mean, at the end of the day, hosting isn't isn't a you know driving expense. It's not a, a huge huge problem for us because it's it's not really that much data at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. It's really the 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 limiting factor on something like perma when you have many thousands of users using it all the time is 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 the training and the support and the setup and the answering user questions and things like that, which we, we have to find ways to support and scale that uh, other than our own staff. Well, let's go ahead and talk about PermaCC because that is maybe one of the most, well, currently probably one of the biggest um, influential things that you've got going on. Um, basically, the idea is, and most people, I hope, have heard about this by now and are aware of it, but links die, websites close, um, people just decide to stop blogging and close it and never come back. And 
newspapers are terrible about maintaining permalinks. And so the idea is, how, how do we find out what people are referencing when they actually use a link? And this is particularly a problem in court opinions, but briefs too. Right. That's exactly right. Uh, the, this, this, the, the, the initial insight was um, a study that Jonathan Zittrain, uh, my boss, did um, with, with Larry Lessig and some other folks, um, Kendra Albert, to look at what happens when the Supreme Court sites to websites or URLs in its opinions. Do those websites persist? Or do they die? Do the, does the content change? Because obviously if you're citing something in the Supreme Court opinion, you want and hope and expect it's going to be available to, to people reading that opinion many, many, many years down the road. And it turns out that in a, in a very short period of time, um, um, we observed that uh, approximately 50% of all the links in Supreme Court opinions had already died, either because they had gone away entirely or because the content had changed in a, in a significant way. And that is a huge, huge problem um, if, it, you know, if it's happening in any court opinion, but especially if it's happening in the Supreme Court opinion, in a Supreme Court opinion. We also looked at law journals and, and looked, did the same kind of study in law journals and found from a, a sample of, of the journals at Harvard Law School that about 70% of the links had, um, had, had died. And so that, in a, in a, especially in a world and a culture where citation is everything, where you've got to get the citation exactly right, you've got to show your work, you've got to point people to the things you're either, either distinguishing or relying upon for your, your points of view and your arguments. Uh, it's a huge, huge problem. And so, I mean, imagine, imagine picking up a case book and, um, you know, you, would, you couldn't actually go and look at the cases or the facts or the issues um, because they were broken. Totally. Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm more of a geek about this stuff than most people, but it kind of makes my skin crawl to imagine like opinions everywhere that are citing things and referencing things that nobody can find. They don't exist anymore. Um, and so, so we didn't stop at just noting the problem. We also conceived and eventually built a, a, a solution and we call it perma.cc and that's the, the web, the web address. And basically the idea is it's a very simple app that you give it the URL you want to cite, the website you want to rely upon, say it's the FBI's uh, top 10 most wanted list online, right? That's obviously something that changes constantly. If you're trying to cite it for a particular person or something, you got to, you got to preserve it. Otherwise it's going to change. It's going to be different. It's going to rot. So you give it, you give PERMA that website. We give you back a unique, uh, uh, link called it, we call a, you know, PERMA link, which, you know, we know that term is elsewhere, but call it a PERMA link. And we preserve a record of the contents of that page in our servers, which are maintained like a library collection. And so is that a screenshot then, or, or how does it, how do you preserve that? We preserve it in two ways. We per preserve a screenshot, a full, sort of full length screenshot. We also preserve all of the assets that comprise the files, so the HTML and the CSS and the JavaScript, into something called a work file, which is a, a dynamic archive mm -hmm. that when you visit one of these, you can actually click on the links, you can actually navigate the page and get the interaction that you would get on a live page. And then how, how deep do you go um, beyond that? Like, do you, do you get the, the next level links that are linked from that page as well? We don't. So we get, the, we get just the stuff... It's at the URL that the user gives us. Okay. So if you've got a, a URL and on that URL, on that web page is 10 other links, we wouldn't get those 10 other links. You'd need to separately and manually grab those as well and, uh, and archive the permis.cc links somewhere. Right. 
it's a page by page thing. And we talked to, I mean, we've gotten that question from a lot of a lot of people. It's a natural question. We talked a little bit about it, but our focus thus far has been on the the thing being cited, the page being cited, the thing on which you would expect a reader of an opinion or a journal article or a brief or what have you to be uh, to to find the thing you, you you want them to see. And anybody can use this, right? It's free to sign up. It's free to use. Practitioners can use it if they want to. Exactly. It's uh, it's it's totally free to sign up and to use. Um, we have a uh, we have a usage limit for the free accounts. Mm-hmm. That is, uh, you can have up to ten links per month for free. And so, when you hit ten, you'll you won't be able to make you won't be able to create any more permanent links. But at the end of the month, you'll get um, topped off to back to ten. Um, but for uh, for journals, for faculty members, for folks who are essentially sponsored and supported by their libraries, mm-hmm. um, there's unlimited usage. And will I mean I can see ten links not being enough if I wanted to actually use it in my legal writing. Is there right. a way that I can contribute or pay in order to get more links? Not today, but we are working on that. Oh, cool. um, we actually just um, we just received some great news that we um, got a very substantial grant from IMLS, which is a federal um, federal grant-making agency for libraries and museums. And the grant is, is all about scaling PERMA beyond legal scholarship and court opinions. And part of that is scaling it to, uh, to practitioners who need more than the 10 per month. And part of that, uh, which also ties into the sustainability piece we talked about, is to set up a, a model in which... Um, um, additional usage can be purchased for for a subscription fee. And are courts using this? Because it seems to me like one of the best ways to get this thing to endure is to make it sort of um, infrastructural, like email. Uh, you know, just being part of the way that courts do things. Right. Uh, that's that's our hope. Um, right now, we've got um, roughly ten court systems using it. So these are the Supreme Courts and the Intermediate Appellate Courts in ten states. Um, I'll highlight a, a couple of the early ones, uh, Massachusetts, Michigan, Colorado, um, Maryland, um, and several others uh, who are using it now in their published opinions. So if you're in those states and you're getting those opinions, you'll see permalinks in those opinions. We've got some other states that are evaluating PERMA. We hope this number will grow. Um, we've got um, the Law Library of Congress is actively using PERMA now for their work and um, have, have written some cool blog posts about uh, their usage of PERMA. Who do you need to talk to in a, in a court um, system in order to make that sort of an arrangement? I mean, I know anybody can just use it, but yeah. I'm sure judges want sort of a, a buy-in from their, from their yep. court. Yep. Typically, the right expertise for this lies in either the, the court's law library mm-hmm. or the reporter decisions office. Those are the reporters of decisions are the ones who typically, depending on the state, but they typically uh, work very closely with the court to ensure that their opinions are published and um, issued in a way that that folks can can you know read them in print or in some cases view them online. So typically, they're the people who handle site checking. They're the people who handle a lot of the layout and formatting aspects of sort of publishing of court opinions, and so that's a good point of contact as well as the uh, the law library. Um, but oftentimes we 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 have seen judges um, independent of their their sort of court infrastructure um, use PERMA, clerks use PERMA, and we we learn about that usage and 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 make sure that they're um, they're on board and using it. And uh, so it it can be initiated by anybody who cares about the 
persistence of the citations. But often it comes through the law libraries, the reporters of decisions. Cool. We're going to take two minutes from our sponsors. And when we come back, I want to talk about the Free the Law Project. And then a project that you're doing that is just really sounds like an amazing thing um, isn't necessarily related to law practice, but I think people are going to want to know about it. Billable hours are the lifeblood of a successful law practice. Problem is, you still have to bill those hours. Even if your law firm has an accountant, tracking hours, clients, rates, preparing invoices, and collecting on those invoices is time you never get paid for. And writing notes to yourself in court or on the road is inefficient and error-prone. Run your legal practice better with cloud accounting software and see why over 600,000 small businesses love Zero, including Lawyerist. Get a free trial at Zero.com. That's X-E-R-O.com. Beautiful accounting software. Wish there was a case management system built just for your area of law? Smokeball comes with over 200 different matter types to support the way you work. Turn case details into documents with automated templates, convert and email PDFs with just a click, and stay on top of every detail and task with workflow tools. Check out Smokeball for your small law firm and never miss a detail again. Watch a two-minute demo at smokeball.com lawyerist today. Okay, we're back. And Adam, tell me about the Free the Law project that you're working on. What is it and, and what's, the, what's the idea? So the, it, it is an effort to uh, transform Harvard Law School Library's collection of uh, United States state and federal court decisions from print into a machine-readable digital form. Is this like a Harvard version of the Google Book Scanning Project? It, it, I mean, it's a, it's a mass digitization project like Google Books. Our focus is is court decisions, which are you know public records. They are the law of the land. So it's a it's a, it's a much more narrow focus. Mm-hmm. But essentially, it's it's a it's a very big mass digitization project where we want to um, we want to make the law as it uh, exists in the form of court decisions accessible as broadly accessible online as possible. And now if people don't get what this is all about, I, I don't know if you remember, but when we had Ed Walters from Fastcase on, he told us that something like 80% of the staff or resources at Fastcase are dedicated to getting the law out of the court system, which if you yeah. can imagine, if, if Fastcase had 80% back in order to invest in um, research and development, what kind of amazing things would they be able to do? It's it's both for public interest, but also just for innovation. It's so hard to innovate when you're stuck, you know, trying to pull all the law out of PDFs or off of paper. Absolutely. Um, Ed's exactly right about that. Uh, it's a, um, it, it restricts and prevents all kinds of innovation. It makes it almost impossible to do lots of really interesting things that require kind of the raw case law data to do them. And I experienced that myself. It, 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 um, yeah, there's so much that can be done when the, the public domain law is broadly accessible. And so uh, we're super fortunate through the hard work uh, over hundreds of years of the Harvard Law School librarians who have collected these volumes and have um, the most comprehensive collection in the U.S. after the Library of Congress of, of reporters, of, of reporters, these case deci- uh, court decision reporters. Mm-hmm. And there are about 42,000 of them in uh, a giant warehouse out in the burbs near, um, near Boston. And uh, essentially what we do is we go out to um, that warehouse, we get the books, we do a lot of data entry to make sure we know what the books are. Then we um, run them through a very high-speed scanner. 
and we do a lot of processing on them, um, OCR and um, uh, markup and redaction. And what gets spit out is some really nicely formatted XML files and processed images that then can be made available publicly online for free. I've been talking about XML files for court decisions with a couple of people recently. And is there an accepted sort of format for that or have you created your own? There's not one single accepted format. I think a lot of people have thought about this and, and worked on this. Mike Listener at the the the, uh, the Free Law Project, which is a different effort, but we have talked with Mike and uh, he's doing incredible work. Uh, but but he and many others have thought a little about what the right schema is for a court decision, and there's a lot of commonality among them. So ours is maybe a little different, but um, um, you know the the main things are you want to know what the name of the case is. You want to know the court it came from. You don't want to know the judge who wrote the opinion. You want, you want to know the, the citation. You want to know the year, uh, the date, rather, when it was issued. Uh, you want to know, if you can, the attorneys who were there, the judges who were there, and all, and all those kinds of things. Um, so it's, it's you know, there's not a, a single authority in terms of the XML uh, schema, but there's a lot of consensus and um, and uh, hopefully it will all converge toward and toward once we get this data out there. And I, I think I remember when we had um, Sarah Glassmeyer on, she was talking about this. And one of the, it sounded like one of the other goals is that you're trying to convince states to uh, contribute their case law to the project. And in return, you're going to store it and index it like you're doing for the other stuff. Is that, do I have that right? Um, not quite. I mean, that's, that's, um, so what we're doing, you know, we have, a collection of all the historical court decisions, right? And we let's say we have it going up through the end of, you know, 2015 and on into 2016. But obviously this is a problem or something that would need to we'd need to do con- on a continuing basis going forward. And so what we're hoping to do through this project and I want to talk a little bit about Ravel and our partnership with them and how how Ravel's role in this because uh, it's super important. But what we're trying to do is um is encourage and to the extent we can assist the the states and the, the the state courts, the federal courts, in making their court decisions sort of born digital in a machine readable form that is going to be useful to people and is not going to require the kind of uh, process and scanning that we're doing for the historical decisions. So it's very much part of our goal to um, help change the equation so that on, on in the future. Uh, courts will publish their decisions from the source in a way that's really, really useful to innovators, to researchers, to um, to all kinds of people who know what to do with this data, and we won't have to deal with lots of mass scanning. So you're trying to you're trying to help them rather than um, you're not necessarily offering to host their data. Well, it, it, you know, I mean, here's we will uh, hosting their. I'm not sure hosting their data is a problem that needs. Solving, yeah, it may be. If it is, and anybody's <laughs> listening, you know, hit me up, and I'd be, I'd love to know more about that. Um, and we are, we are digitizing the historical record, so uh, um, we're basically sol- we're, we're hoping to solve the problem from a historical standpoint. The problem that I'm talking about is really going forward. So, what can we do to help courts, um, to assist courts in publishing their court decisions? in a format from the source that is online, that is accessible to everyone, that's machine-readable, that's um, citable, it's authoritative, it's official, 
all those things that, you know, while most courts have websites and their opinions are on the websites for at least a little while, at least in slip form, but those are typically not the the opinions that become final and official. And what we want to do is, is change the, the, the framework here so that courts are publishing their stuff online for lots and lots of people who can do interesting things to take from the source and um, not have to deal with um, either proprietary control over court opinions or um, mass digitization of right. court opinions. One of the things that um, this implies is, you know, for, for many, many years, we've essentially had Thompson and uh, or Westlaw and Lexis, Nexus, and then there have been sort of a small handful of um, smaller publishing companies that give access to legal research and and that's it, right? There's been there's a handful of total of companies that you might contract with to do your legal research, but it's starting to feel like within a force the foreseeable future, you're going to be able to choose from potentially dozens or hundreds or roll your own search engine um, from an open source project, which is interesting. I, I you know the idea of working with a trusted provider is attractive in some ways. Um, the idea of having a fully free and open repository of U.S. case law out there that anyone can search is also yeah. pretty awesome. But I wonder if, if well, lawyers at least, because I'm thinking at, at, about this from a lawyer's lens, I wonder if lawyers are going to be comfortable with that. Well, they won't be because they're never comfortable with um, new things. But eventually, they, I wonder if they'll get comfortable with it. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it will take some time, and uh, there's a lot of work still to be done. But um, y you mentioned the innovation that's already happening in the kind of legal research and analytics space, and I think that's that's a, we're very early in that story, and it's a hugely important story. And it's just kind of where I put on my um, my my old practitioner's hat and think about the types of insights I know are embedded in this law when you view it, when you use it as mm -hmm. data that can inform and supplement what uh, a person does by reading a case and figuring out like how to how to frame an argument, how to approach a particular issue with a particular judge, how to um, anticipate problems for clients. There's so much you can do with law when it's treated as data that's really exciting. That's why we're so excited to be working on this project with Ravel, which is our partner in making all of this happen. So they we've we have an agreement with Ravel, which is a which I'm sure you know of, but it's a yeah. legal research and analytics company based out in San Francisco. And um, they are uh, working with us to help fund this project. And they are receiving the data from the, from the essentially from the processed XML and then putting it into their platform so that it's available to anyone using their platform for free on a search basis. And Ravel also is using it to power its analytics products, which is really exciting. And so California is already done. California cases, the, the entire run of California cases is available through Ravel, as is New York. And we're going to be bringing more jurisdictions online, you know, basically every month as we, as we work through them. Cool. So it, it's really an exciting time for, I mean, I, I, again, for from my point of view as a lawyer, it's an exciting time to be thinking about getting beyond just reading cases and just doing keyword searches and getting into like, what can I, um, being the expert in the law, being expert in my client situation, um, 
what can I do to really get some unique insight into what the law tells us about a particular situation? So that, that gets me that gets me really excited. <laughs> well, I mean, innovating um, in any way that requires information about the legal system right now, um, it feels like driving around with the parking brake on. And yeah. Um, you know, between the various projects that are out there that are that are about freeing the law, um, it's like pulling the parking brake off and finally being able to use your engine. Um, and I, it, the sky's the limit at that point. It'll, it'll be interesting. I don't think that's hyperbole. I think there are some amazing things we'll be able to see at that point. So the great thing about it is, you know, we can't anticipate everything that's going to be possible because of this. You know, we 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 can imagine some of the cool things that are going to, that we're going to be able to do, but we mm-hmm. can't. Um, whatever we think, there's going to be other things we haven't thought of yet that smart developers and smart lawyers and smart librarians um, are going to come up with when the data is there for them to experiment with and to play around with and to try and to access. And so that's uh, another part of this that, that we're super excited about. So let's uh, let's talk about one more project. Um, and, and people uh, who are listening, if you want to know everything that the Library Information Lab is working on, it's librarylab.law.harvard.edu. We'll throw that link in the show notes, of course. Um, there's a list of all the projects, and there's also a list of sketches, which is things that might eventually become projects. And it's kind of exciting to look through there and just see how creative um, the people at the information lab are and the sorts of directions they're going. Um, so Adam, one last thing, tell me about the Nuremberg project. All right. So the, the Nuremberg project, um, is, uh, an effort to make available online, this amazing collection of original records. The Harvard law library has from the Nuremberg war crimes tribunals. So, um, we have hundreds and hundreds of boxes of evidence files and transcripts and, um, um, you know, pleadings and attorney documentation and all kinds of stuff that was, you know, was, a key, was key to the prosecution of these trials. And we're um, digitizing it all and making it available online eventually for researchers and scholars and law students and historians to be aware of, to study, to get to know. And... Um, it's such a, I mean, it's, it's about a million documents. Uh, I think there are 13 trials overall. They all have transcripts. Ultimately, we hope to link the transcripts together with the evidence files. And, um, I mean, most lawyers, whatever their vintage, have a sense of this event as a really seminal moment in, you know, war crimes um, litigation, as well as just an important historical thing. And obviously, the context, it doesn't get any bigger than that. So um, it's really exciting to us to be able to use our equipment, like the the high-speed scanner, Mm -hmm. to scan these materials. And by the way, these materials, unlike some of the core decisions, these are original materials that are brittle, they're fading, they have to be preserved. Will I be able to look at the original materials um, once you're done with this project? Well, they, I mean, what you'll be able to see online are the, are, 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 you know, very good images of the original right, materials. We still, have the ori- we still have the original materials, yeah. but all the images are going to be available online. So right now we have a, a, a an older um, web presence that only includes a, a small portion of the, um, of the actual collection. And so we're doing some, some really cool work now to redesign the web presence for this project and to make it possible to provide everything that we're 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 scanning to the public to to view online. This is this is a you know it's a high profile project. It's a hugely important 
event, all of this material sitting in boxes that no one can access unless you really have the, the luxury to come here and sit down with these boxes of books and kind of parse through them. And uh, it's really exciting to be watching our team led primarily by Steve Chapman and Paul Deschner um, work this material into a state where it's really, really useful online. And one of the interesting things about the Nuremberg Project is you have to do a lot of work, and I've been educated on this in my time here at the library, but you have to do a lot, a lot of work on the back end to, to um, organize and identify and tag these documents so mm-hmm. that they're findable and useful to people online, because otherwise it's just a massive, you know, it's just a massive, undifferentiated mess of, uh, of PDF files. So we're really excited about that project and, you know, hope to, hope to, to um, we'll probably have to go out and get some funding to, uh, to see it all the way through, but we're really excited about about the, the progress on that one as well. You know, one of the things that gets me excited about technology is the ability to experience things that we know about in a different new way where we get to actually learn it. Um, I, I've, I've mentioned a bunch of times two of my favorite apps for the iPad are The Wasteland and a new app called Heuristic Shakespeare, um, where similarly you've got this, you've got, it's not obviously not similar to the Nuremberg Trials, but it's similar in the sense of having a much talked about famous annotated thing um, and then they're presented so that you can listen to an actor or even the original poet um, reading it while you look at the text and you can touch on words and bring up annotations you can go and look at the original edition with the poets or the playwrights scribbles on it um, it's really an amazing way to experience these things and like with the Nuremberg trials I feel like I know about them um, but I don't know much detail, and uh, I certainly wouldn't uh, have never experienced it in such an immersive way where I essentially have a study library at my fingertips. Um, and it, if you aren't building that directly, it sounds like this is sort of the foundation for what could be something like that. And that, I mean, that's just such an amazing thing that we, you know, our, we or our kids or whatever may be able to learn about these important events in a much more real way than, than I did. Yeah, totally agree. That's it's funny because we were we're in the midst of uh, of uh, running a, a call for fellows. We're doing a summer fellowship in our innovation lab this summer, and we're getting some amazing uh, interest in applicants. We were interviewing someone yesterday who was talking about exactly that, saying the difference between understanding that there was a historical event and actually being able to immerse yourself in the the documents, the artifacts of it, and to you know, read what people were saying and writing at the time as they were working through this 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 history is uh, it's a huge difference and it makes all the difference in helping people really understand what it was about. But first, you need the body of the body of information that you can build that thing out of. So, right, exactly, exactly. So we're excited about that one. Well, Adam, thank you so much for being with us today and telling us about the information lab and the stuff you're working on. It's really cool stuff. And if people want to know more about it. Um, like I said, it's librarylab.law.harvard.edu, and we'll include that in the notes. Thanks so much, Adam. Awesome. Thanks, Sam. To make sure you catch next week's episode of The Lawyerist Podcast, subscribe to The Lawyerist Podcast in iTunes or in your favorite podcast app. You can listen to it at lawyerist.com slash podcast. You can also subscribe to The Lawyerist Insider, our weekly newsletter. Just go to lawyerist.com and look down the sidebar or click on newsletter up at the top. We'll remind you where to find the podcast whenever we release a new episode. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.